Hi, I'm Taban Sharesh, the host of That Something Within. My aim with this podcast is to have conversations with people from all walks of life to find out that moment where that something within was triggered for them to make changes in their life. I hope you enjoy listening to this and find inspiration in these stories. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Welcome to That's Something Within and today I'm so happy to be joined by Paisy Maliki, uh, an established fashion stylist and women's rights activist. Paisy is generally known for her distinct style and social presence um, but has, has recently taken a very different journey, opening up about her life outside of fashion and um, her long-awaited entry into activism and humanitarian work. She is keen to break the stereotypes and silence around issues that Middle Eastern women face around the world. Paisy campaigns to end child marriage as a result of her own experience of child marriage and the sad honour killing of her sister, Benaz. Welcome, Paisy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I am as well. I've been I've been following you forever and um, I, I'm just like, I need to speak to her. I need to find out <laughs> everything. So I'm really, really excited. Um, so let's, let's just start, I guess, with... Um, your childhood if you could tell us a little bit about that period of your life I guess what you're comfortable with because I know it's 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 a very difficult one to talk about um and then we can take it from there sure so my childhood um I basically pretty much spent it all in Iran so my parents um immigrated to Iran in the late 80s and um, as a result of the Iran-Iraq war. So I grew up, um, to be honest, uh, childhood was quite tough. So there was quite a lot of, a lot of us. Um, I have a very big family, so five siblings. And we grew up all, you know, in quite a small house with a lot of other family members, um, not having any access to education. And I think as a gal, what looking back now, um, I remember about my childhood is that it was very sheltered. There was a lot I wasn't able to do. And there was uh, quite a lot of um, restriction on my expression and, you know, just on the way that I was able to be a child. So looking back on my childhood, I would say it was a quite a, um, you know, a difficult sheltered childhood that I had. And then when I was 11, I came to the UK and that's where I started having access to education and, you know, things did start to, I think for me as a child, you, you take um, happiness and joy from such little things. So just having access to going to school and, you know, having friends at school and just those little things really kind of made my childhood from there on feel like it was better. Yeah. And so how was life like when you, I guess, arrived and settled in the UK? How did you adjust? Oh God, it was so hard adjusting. Honestly, um, firstly, I didn't speak English. So I had to learn a whole new language, a whole new culture, a whole new way of life. It was quite difficult, I think, specifically for me and my family to integrate because I realized very quickly on that my parents didn't want us to really integrate fully into the society that we were living in. So you would see all these things and, you know, you'd see other children, let's say, being allowed to do certain things and expressing themselves. And for us, we still had that very much, um, you know, that sheltered lifestyle. So it felt quite hard to 
see all the things that you could do, the opportunities that were there, but that you couldn't take part in because of your family and because of the you know restrictions that were set in place in your family settings. Did you did you also? I mean, I don't know if you got this. Did you hear a lot of um, it's Ava? We're Kurdish growing oh, up. God. I I honestly hated that word with every part of my soul. I you, everything was Ava, literally. Like even just laughing out loud was Ava. And I think so many Kurdish, especially girls, can relate to this that this word was just used to constantly mute you, to constantly make you invisible and for people not to see you, not to hear you. And it was just honestly just so damaging to our existence to constantly hear that being thrown at you for every little thing. And, you know, as I got older, I really start to understand that word and its meaning that was not what it was used for, you know, in my upbringing. It was completely the opposite. You know, to me, Haber is someone who generally does something disrespectful, something mean, not somebody who is just, you know, existing, which is what I think was basically taught to us. Yes, it's definitely a word to silence and mute, like you said. And it's, it's really difficult to kind of, like, you you want the acceptance and love from your family, so you'll listen. Um, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they said something which is so relevant. And I guess love in a way for us was, you know, it was a, it was a forced love in a way because you're, you're, you're loved, but on these conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the love is like, it's like a love, love, it's proper love, but but there are conditions to it. Don't step out of these conditions. Yeah. And it's so toxic, you know, because as you learn about this type of, um, you know, these type of things, as you learn about what is really not right and unhealthy in relationships, in love and interactions, you you start to realize that toxic um, set of, you know, uh, rules that were set in place in order for you to get that one thing from your parents, from your family that every child should have access to, you know, not even just as children, but even as adults, we should all be loved and supported and accepted by our families. But there was such a big, yeah, absolutely. As you say, unconditional. And, um, you know, I'm I'm sad to say that I, I didn't experience that growing up. And as you very clearly said, it was always, you can only access my love if you do this. And, and the moment you don't, it's not there for you anymore. Mm. Mm. And so I guess that kind of brings us on to um, the the moment in your life where, uh, sadly, your sister Bernaz, um was murdered. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about that and going on to that. Yes, of course. Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, yeah, so I guess going on from what we were saying and how love is conditional, how would you apply that to that situation? Oh God, that was, you know, in in the most extreme example that could be presented to me as an 18-year-old seeing, you know, something so tragic, something so inhumane happened to my sister. That said to me, you know, without any words, just in, in actions, clear actions, that this is what happens if you don't obey to the rules. And this is what happens if you don't listen to us. And you know, I think it gave me a massive identity crisis because when you look back at the at these toxic family settings, you realize that even when you're in it, it doesn't feel right. But because 
you've been growing up in that environment and all your life, that's all you've known. Whenever you even have a moment of questioning whether this is right or wrong, you very quickly fall back into the trap of, well, this is my family, so I have to, I just have to accept it. And this is, this is how they are. I have to accept them for the way they are. And I think for me, I had a lot of those two voices in my head where, you know, I kept thinking to myself, well, this is so wrong. How can this happen to my sister, to, you know, my best friend growing up, my own flesh and blood. And, but then these people are my family. These people are my parents and, you know, they say they love you. So it's such a conflicting position to be in. And it, it literally, it's, it's just the identity crisis in one word. Can we so for just for the viewers that are, uh, the listeners that are listening, um, can we explain what's happened with that situation? Yeah, of course. Are so, you able um, to give a brief summary? Yeah, sure. So my sister Benaz uh, was um, seventeen when she had a uh, essentially a forced marriage to a man that she'd never met. Um, you know, she met him once, and then it was agreed between him and my family, um, so my parents, that he was to marry her. And, uh, you know, from the moment she married this man, he was abusive and there was a massive age gap. So naturally there was a power dynamic and he'd just come into the country from Kurdistan. So he wasn't looking for a wife. He was looking for, you know, a very traditional, um, woman to just control and to basically have his way with. And, um, my sister was, you know, clearly unhappy from the day that she'd she'd married him, and we all knew about that. This wasn't something she was hiding, but unfortunately, she never really had any support in actually taking any action in, you know, leaving this marriage. She had to sort of stay with him in that marriage, and um, I think two years into her being married, she something just, you know, must have hit for her. I guess something must have clicked for her where she decided enough is enough. You know, she couldn't take the abuse anymore, the physical abuse, the mental abuse. And sadly, my sister actually reached out to the police when, you know, she realized the family wasn't helping her. She reached out to the police and she made uh, several reports of the abuse that she was suffering, you know, um, domestic abuse, uh, rape. But the police in the UK absolutely ignored my sister and unfortunately, um, from the moment Benaz had decided she's leaving that marriage, what was decided as a community was that because she left her abusive marriage, she had actually brought shame onto the family and had, you know, uh, separated from her husband. And what started off as rumours in the community uh, really tragically and quite rapidly led to attempts on her life, which again were reported, but the British police didn't care about her reports. And then um, within six months of her leaving her husband um, and actually meeting somebody new, uh, the community decided to take things into their own hands. And it was decided that because of my sister leaving her abusive marriage and uh, you know, exercising the right to actually love somebody else, it was decided that my sister should lose her life. I just I just can't I can't comprehend it like I can't even imagine what you were going through what like that must have been unbelievable like it would shake me to the core um and I'm I'm I remember like I was in that community in terms of like we part of the Kurdish community everyone hears what's happening and I remember the news breaking out and we just couldn't believe it we were in disbelief 
Um, and even though, you know, my family would always say, oh, we wouldn't do that. But actually, there's still conditions. And, and I would I would challenge them. I think that's where my um, challenging and campaigning kind of would push back on family and go, yeah, but you wouldn't do that. But you would do this. But you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do this. So it's I can't even imagine like what you were going through at that time. And how did that impact? Like, how did you carry on after that? Like, what 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 was life like beyond that? Um, honestly, that moment, um, you know, that period when I realized what happened to my sister and it happened within my family. Um, I think it, it killed me inside for quite a long time, at least a decade. I literally, time just froze because there was, you know, you said as an outsider, even though, you know, you're within the Kurdish community, you heard about the news and you just couldn't believe this is real. For me, that you know it was right in front of me and I, I just couldn't understand I couldn't um you know I couldn't actually unpack what was what was happening what the motivation behind this evil act was and what made it so challenging for me was that I was in the heart of the people who were you know responsible for this I was literally in the center of that community um so for me I I think I just um, went into a shutdown mode for for about ten years. I completely lost sight of you know what life was. I remember I was literally eighteen and I swore that I would never ever um, you know I would never celebrate anything. I would wear black all the time and my mum would beg me for years on and, and she would say you know you've got to carry on living. You've got to continue your life. But it just killed me inside. It killed my spirit that something so tragic had happened and you know, you, you, you sort of like picture your life and, and the things you would do and your family's a part of that. And to just suddenly lose a member of your family over, you know, something like love, it's, it's just unbelievable. So it really shocked me to the core. And for so many years, um, you know, I don't speak about this much, but it's, it's actually a massive part of my coping journey was to turn to drugs, to turn to smoking, because, I had no other way of living. I, I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't wake up every day and think I'm excited about life. I'm excited about university or, you know, what my future holds. Every day was just a day that would, you know, drag. And I think it's only now, I would say, over the last maybe six months or so where I've really started my healing journey. Because mm. in all those years, I was just you know, barely surviving. I, I couldn't, I, you know, I, I felt no excitement for life. I couldn't even see tomorrow. And, you know, it actually led me down a very dark road of a depression, you know, um, suicidal thoughts and just, you know, just not seeing a way out, just not seeing how, how I can continue with life after something so tragic happening. And even in my own life, you know, I, I obviously experienced, um, other traumatic events. So I was married when I was a child and, you know, my husband was very abusive and I had barely any support from my family to leave him. But losing my sister compared to, you know, any other traumatic event that, that had occurred in my life, it just, it, it left such a big hole in my life. And were you married, um, while what happened to while you're were you married when your sister was uh murdered 
Yes. Um, so actually, uh, my sister got married um, the year of 2004, and then I got married uh, six months later. So we were married at the same time. And we were so close, we even decided whilst we were married to live together. So we, we even, you know, went through that experience together while we were married and very unhappy in our marriages. Um, but it, it always haunts me to say this, as a result of my sister's, you know, really tragic death, it actually gave me the courage and the fight to say, I, I don't want anything to do with this marriage and this man. And no matter what, I will get out. So it was actually, you know, she she gave me the strength to finally leave my marriage. And I was literally uh, about to turn 18 and I had no support, no community family support. But I said, I'm going to get out of this. And, you know, I, I pushed myself. I was the only one who had my back and I got out of that marriage by force. Yeah, I, I think that's it's incredibly brave to do that because I know how hard it is, especially at that time. Like things, I think, have changed a little bit now, and it's it's not such a taboo if you get divorced or if you leave um, now. But I think in our era, it was it was a massive, massive thing to step out of a marriage. So there's there's that great strength there. I would, wow, I don't know how to absorb all that. That's so much. Um, so I where do I go I'm like I want to jump everywhere so I guess there's there's a lot you must have had so much anger inside of you could you channel that like how how did you how Um, did you cope your emotions to be honest my emotions were all over the place I mean I swear I was you know you see people and sometimes you ask yourself, God, why are they so angry? I was that person that would get on a train. If anybody even looked at me or if anybody even just accidentally barged past me, I would be that person that would have a full screaming rant at somebody, break down, cry. And, you know, I was honestly, emotionally, I was completely out of control. I would go from being um, you know, like, oh, I'm I'm fine. Everything's great. You know, have my pretend face on and very loud all over the place to literally breaking down and not leaving my home, you know, for a week and just disappearing and shutting everyone off. I was a complete emotional wreck. I was all over the place. And, you know, I, that anger that I felt, um, it would just come out in burst. And, you know, as an 18 year old who, um, I'm sure you'll you'll agree with this, but mental health isn't something that we hear about growing up, isn't something that our families discuss. Maybe now, thank God. But mm. you know, back then you you wouldn't, you know, lose you've actually lost somebody, but we would never address the fact that we have lost somebody. We are mourning, you know, this is sad. It was just business as usual. And for me, it it's took not- such a toll. In this particular, it's not just losing somebody. You've kind of lost many family members in one go because Mm -hmm. it's it's it was committed by family members, and therefore you've not just lost one person but several people, and that kind of that amplifies that feeling. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, just not discussing it. Gosh, it was pouring out of me. My emotions were just you know, I, I couldn't control them. I literally had nowhere to channel all my anger. And I I went through such an identity crisis for so many years. 
I said to myself, I don't want anything to do with my Kurdish roots because all I could blame was the fact that these people are from my community, my roots, and this is what they believe in. You know, of course, I've, you know, matured and I've been able to actually progress those thoughts and I've been able to judge each individual for their own, you know, actions, um, which I'm really, really glad for. And I've found, you know, my love for my culture and my roots. But I was so angry, you know, starting from my own family to the community to just everything about where where those um you know those harmful practices actually stem from and how they've made their way all the way here to London. That's wow. So I guess this kind of brings me on to the next question which so you know I know in our culture fashion and what you wear and like we're always told you can't wear this you can't wear that or used to not now I think things have changed now um do you think you getting into and entering the fashion world was a way for you to channel your anger and rebellion yeah absolutely um I you know looking back on fashion it was my means to express to people you know what I was thinking and what I was feeling and for a long time, um, I went through like a very dark um, fashion phase where I just wanted people, without me communicating, I wanted people to know that I was mourning, that I was sad, that I didn't want to wear any prints or any colors, and that I just wanted to, you know, wear black and actually embody the emotions that I was feeling in in my art and in, in my fashion. So it was such a great... Um, outlet for me in terms of you know my feelings but I also remember you know in my early 20s using it as a almost rebellion act because I would think well my family doesn't like this so I'm just going to wear it because I'm so angry at what you've done I'm going to try and push your buttons and I know I can do this through wearing things you don't like and wearing things you don't approve of yeah I, I mean it's 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 amazing how we bring and use outlets to try and carry our emotions and help us Mm. through the healing. Um, So how did you, I guess you're in the fashion world and you've been very successful at it. I I, I absolutely admire your style. I think you're going to have to style me one day. Thank you. I would Um, love to. (laughs) um, So how did that, this is where we kind of come into that something within. What, What was the moment where for you, you decided actually I'm going to own my past and own my story and what's happened what was that something within that you know what, what was that moment can you describe that for us um to be honest with you so um it's now been 14 years since I lost my sister and the first decade for me was an absolute you know um uh, just living in denial And then from there on, I think it's only been in the last maybe year and a half, um, two years, where I would continue to see these uh, stories in the press. And I would continue to see, um, you know, a a girl has tragically lost her life or her brother or her father is responsible for taking her life in the name of so-called honour. And it almost felt like there were signs being shown to me that this is still happening. What happened to my sister wasn't a one-off, wasn't a case that, you know, was the first and the last case. It was still happening. And um, I remember a very specific moment. I was in the gym about a year and a half ago, and I saw this story 
um, of this uh, Egyptian girl and her ex-partner had, had basically attacked her and taken her life because she'd left him. And, you know, of course, they called it an honor killing. And I just remember freezing in that moment. And all I could think about was what it felt like when I discovered what happened to my sister. And I, you know, my heart broke in that moment for the family of that gal and her mother and, you know, her sisters. And I just felt like, I can't believe this is still happening. And I have to do something about this because, you know, that is something I've experienced. And I, I need to make sure that people know about this and that people actually do something about this and talk about this because this is still happening 14 years on we are still hearing about these cases and something that really drove me was the fact that within the you know police establishments within the um, agencies the organizations people don't take this seriously but this is a real life issue and it you know it really made me sort of um want to speak and say look we need to do better. We're failing these girls. Not only are their families failing them, but also the corporate organizations are failing them because they're not taking them seriously. Because all of these girls will have the same history. They will have gone to the police. They will have gone to social services. You know, somebody would have known that this is something happening in their life, but nobody will actually take action and stop this. So I think that was the moment where I thought to myself, I, you know, what happened to my sister? it can't be in vain. This this has to stop and I have to be her voice. I have to make sure that, firstly, nobody ever forgets Benaz, that her name will always, always be at the, at the center of our thoughts and, you know, that we remember her in honor and that we actually stop this from happening, that we raise awareness, we talk about this and that agencies train on these topics because it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And like when you decided to shift your focus from fashion to campaigning, mm -hmm. were you scared? Because like facing up and owning a story and taking action on it can be very scary. So were you scared? Did you have any fears or did you f face any challenges from the community or the family? I was very scared, to be honest with you. Um, firstly, I was scared that my own community and my own, um, you know, family and people wouldn't support me and wouldn't actually, you know, jump on this positive movement that I'm, I'm trying to help us. Um, so that was my my first, my biggest fear. And, you know, unfortunately, we have heard tons and tons about activists, especially female activists who are, you know, um, targeted the moment they speak out. But I also felt very, um, I also very, felt very scared of people actually judging me and judging my experiences. But I think what drove me is that I can't, that can't be my reason for not doing the right thing. I have to do the right thing for the greater good. Um, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't face any backlash. Um, there, there has been a little bit of backlash and you know, sometimes online, sometimes in real life where people have challenged me and said, you know, why why do you want to talk about this? Why do you need to talk about this? And I always try my best to just explain that because this is something that has happened. This isn't something that we can pretend hasn't happened and it is still happening. Um, one thing that I'm so, so grateful for and first I was very surprised by was that my, um, you know, fellow Kurds around the world via social media have you know shown me such an amazing 
uh, level of support and have really engaged in this conversation. And that's something that, you know, just continues to encourage me. I've also almost found a family of other mm. activists and other young voices, you know, Kurds from literally from Kurdistan to Sweden, to Germany, to the States. And it's really, really made me feel like we're, you know, we're part of a movement that is moving maybe slowly, but it's surely moving. And together, you know, we, we are all coming together, thank God, via, you know, this amazing tool, the internet, and we're making things happen and we're changing, we're shifting the, these old school narratives that we just have no room for in our societies. Completely, completely. And, and do you think this journey has helped with your healing? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I honestly, if... um. I think if I hadn't if I hadn't started this process, um, you know, uh, if I'm being very honest, it's a very dark reality. But I don't know if I would still be here because had I not found that, you know, something to channel all of this energy into a change, a positive change, I just couldn't have gone on because I, I was honestly going down a very very dark road and I I just I didn't want to live anymore. I couldn't see life and you know, since opening up and channeling and actually owning, yes, I have trauma. And yes, I, I have a very a complicated, you know, family history. To this day, I have a very complicated, complex family, uh, you know, community dynamics that have so many layers um, that I'm trying to understand and I'm trying to navigate through. Even though it's challenging, it's it's helping me heal. And it's it's honestly a healing journey from the day I decided I've got to do something to today. And, you know, it's it's speaking to people like yourself and seeing these positives that changes that we're making that is so healing. And it's it's just helping me continue, you know, on a personal level, but also on this uh, campaigning uh, journey level. I think that's, that's it's just so important because I think as activists, we forget to we forget to heal ourselves. We take on the cause so much, but actually healing your own traumas comes first. And I always remind people of that. So that is so beautiful to hear. So what I mean, I think I, I, I'm sure I know the answer to this, but what <laughs> keeps you going? Um, honestly, what keeps me going is my my memories of my amazing sister who she was just, you know, a ray of light, sunshine, you know, no, nobody has ever met my sister that didn't fall in love with her in the first instance. And it's her, her amazing energy that I was so, so lucky to experience, you know, for 18 years of my life that she just keeps me going. And, you know, I, I look at her pictures and I, I remember all the amazing times I shared with her and she just keeps me going. She she makes me feel like there is a better future for our young people out there and we have to do better for them. You know, we, we failed my sister, but she is pushing me to make sure we don't fail anybody else. Oh, that's beautiful. And she's definitely around you. I'm, I'm a massive believer in that. And she's yeah. pushing and supporting you all the way. Looking back, as as hard as you know, and traumatic and, you know, what, what you faced has been. Um, are you happy that you listened to that something within that led you to change the direction in your life and do what you're doing now? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, because I dread to think, 
you know, where my life would have gone if I didn't listen to that voice. And that's why I think sometimes we see signs and we almost get, you know, I, I don't know where who gives you those signs and where those signs come from, but sometimes you see signs in front of you and you just can't ignore them. And it's almost like this this thing, this energy that is coming towards you that is saying like, you can change this. And if you only just take that step. And for me, the moment that I decided to actually take that that step, which, you know, was very difficult, that was the moment that, you know, led me to change. And I'm I'm so grateful I listened to that voice. And I wish that voice came before, but everything happens when when it's supposed to. Everything is you know, is exactly timing is is really a thing. And so no, I'm I'm honestly very, very glad that I, I listen to that voice within because it has led me to have such great conversations about the need for change. And, you know, I see the change. It's happening. It's slow, but I see the change. And, you know, even having conversations like this, this is so important because for anybody that's listening, this may encourage them to open that conversation within their household. And to me, this is why we do it. This is why we're having these conversations. It's if it helps even just one person. Definitely, 100%. And what advice would you give to listeners listen to, listening to this and anyone that has that moment, that's something within, or to look out for that moment? Is there anything that you would advise them? I would say welcome it. You know, sometimes um, I think we, we have moments and then what happens is self-doubt comes in and you think to yourself no I can't do this you know it might seem like a good idea but I don't think I can go through this I'm I'm not strong enough but I would say take that leap of faith and listen to that voice because I promise you once you get past the challenges the ugly on the other side what is waiting for you is just blessings and a path a new path a journey that you'll be thankful for once you actually engage in it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Paisy, you're an absolute inspiration. And I have loved this conversation. I could, I could literally go on for hours. Um, <laughs> we most probably can carry on later. Um, but thank you so, so much. I I don't know where to start. How can people contact you, get in touch? Um, so all of my social media, so my Twitter, my Instagram is all Paisy Malika and it's all the same throughout. And there you have my uh, email address if you want to contact me as well. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much again for your time. Thank you and so all much. all the hard work that you do. And all, Thank you. Yeah, I love following your journey. Everyone else, please follow and see the amazing work that Paisy's doing. Thank you so much. It's been so amazing to speak with you. And thank you for giving me the platform to have this conversation because I'm You're sure welcome. so many people will actually take something away. So thank you. Oh, we need we need more discussions like this, especially in our yes. community. We definitely Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Something Within. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe found inspiration in the stories. If you'd like to get in contact about any of today's points, you can find me at Taban Shiresh on social channels. Remember to follow me to get updates on future episodes and remember to share the podcast. We're really looking forward to having you tune in for the next episode.